Hello, and welcome to Skynet Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear AI researchers chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we'll provide summaries and discussion of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Sharon Joe. And I am your other host, Andrei Kurenkov. And this week, we'll be discussing our usual mix of application and business, where we'll talk about GitHub using machine learning for software vulnerabilities and AI-developed drugs. We'll talk about some research on using AI for DNA sequencing and how AI compute has been growing recently. We'll talk about some society and ethics story about China regulating AI and AI being used in Russia's army. And we'll finish with some fun stories about vacation photos of zebras and using AI uh, for choosing your clothes. And let's dive straight in. Our first article in Applications in Business is how GitHub uses machine learning to extend vulnerability code scanning. Uh, and so GitHub is uh, hoping to detect vulnerability patterns in code using some machine learning. And so up until now, they've been using human experts to help detect uh, situations uh, in which, you know, user data might end up in a dangerous place. Um, and they have encapsulated all of this knowledge in these code QL queries Um and uh, now they are trying to get not only, you know, use this data of security experts curating and figuring out uh, and analyzing these existing vulnerability patterns. They are now trying to use machine learning to identify some of these vulnerability patterns, both now and in the future, uh, to help with finding uh, these vulnerabilities, which are uh, quite critical given how much code that GitHub uh, hosts. And uh, what's interesting is that uh, they, uh, you know, ran, um, they ran uh, their ML based code scanning um, on a number of the most common vulnerabilities in both JavaScript and TypeScript, which are quite common. And this includes cross site scripting, path injection, NoSQL injection and SQL injection, um, a couple of which you may have heard about. And based on the current data, GitHub actually said that um, while the metrics vary by query, uh, they have a recall of approximately 80% and a precision of approximately 60%. So uh, quite decent uh, making progress towards this front. And uh, it seems like a really important direction to be pushing on and to have automated methods for identifying these vulnerabilities in addition to having human experts. Yeah, exactly. Um, this automatic uh, scanning for vulnerabilities is quite interesting to me. This approach of turning rule-based techniques that just scan and apply a sort of template to then use that to train a machine learning model that can hopefully generalize and yeah, catch things that aren't quite as hard coded. Um, so yeah, this, this I think was quite interesting and it does sort of follow in the trend of all of these papers working on AI for writing programs or for completing programs where coding and programs is something a little different than traditional text in NLP because it needs to be very precise, right? It needs to be grammatically correct or else it doesn't run. 
which is more challenging for neural nets than something like translating languages uh, between different uh, or translating text between different languages potentially because there is less kind of a, a strict grammar to follow. So it's interesting to see all this research going on and obviously software runs the world these days. So <laughs> the more machine learning we'll see dealing with software, the more AI will just be everywhere, I guess. And specifically what they did that was interesting. So the method, the machine learning method wasn't actually, you know, that novel, but it was actually in the way they did labeling that was kind of interesting, which is that they used uh, their code QL rules, which are these, you know, vulnerability patterns. Um, but there are a set of rules that they can apply to tens of millions of code snippets. And they can do this with, you know, relatively little effort and with, these rules, they can then, you know, provide these as labels to the machine learning algorithm that hopefully then can generalize beyond those rules uh, instead of having experts be labeling these millions of snippets. Yeah, which is which is quite interesting as well, because I can totally imagine some of these things like vulnerabilities is a total cat and mouse game, right, where there's new ones all the time. So you might have this backlog of previous sort of steps and uh, additions and so on. And with this kind of approach, you can potentially get ahead in this cat and mouse game, right? And, you know, uh, the cat can, I guess, go faster <laughs> or something. That being said, I'm curious to see how well this generalizes too, given the fact that it is trained on these rules and whether it can help participate in that cat-mouse game, because right now it's also being evaluated on simple things. Uh, that code, uh, that, that, their original, um, uh, that their original rules-based system is able to detect as well, code QL. That's true, yeah. And uh, yeah, it also would be interesting if they do go for something more interesting. As you said, this is fairly straightforward. But there are ideas you could see where it's more of a hybrid, you know, you still have rules, but it's augmented by an AI model, something like that. Um, that would also be pretty cool. So I'm sure there are papers on this that we just don't know about. <laughs> There's a whole field of research uh, with interesting ideas, uh, but it's cool to see this actually being deployed by GitHub or these being researched for deployment. And talking about deployment, we have our next story uh, titled First Holy AI Developed Drug Enters Phase 1 Trials. So um, there's been a lot of uh, excitement about the potential of AI to be part of drug development, which is generally a very kind of uh, long process. It, it, takes a lot of experimentation and verification and testing to get a new drug for any given thing. And in, uh, in doing this development, you need to go to this phase one trial where it's the first time it's tested in humans at the dosage level required for therapeutic effect. So it's it's just for testing safety and not so much clinical effectiveness. And then before that, drugs uh, go through preclinical trials and uh, smaller doses 
and so on. And this is all after a drug has been developed, right? So this article is about how um, this company in Silico Medicine uh, has a drug that is set to start a phase one clinical trial that was developed, uh, so to speak, end-to-end by AI. So um, they worked on this um, drug that should help with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which stiffens the lung issues, uh, lung tissues of older people and affects a lot of people, 5 million each year. And to keep it short, it's interesting because uh, it was a three-part AI-powered process of that was drug. There was Pandaomics, where it was NLP to crawl massive data sets. There was Chemistry 42, a type of AI uh, where they used a GAN to identify a molecule. And then there was another uh, technique, the first step, where AI was used to monitor uh, in uh, the effects in the volunteers. So, yeah. Um, not, I haven't been following this too closely, but it seems like an exciting step. Uh, what do you think, Sharon? I think uh, this is, I mean, very, very cool that we are now starting to see these types of drugs uh, actually being developed by AI completely and uh, being being now um put out there. Uh, I'm curious to see how this progresses beyond this, uh, these initial phases um, and whether this will become more and more the norm of how we push these drugs out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, it's a big space. There's a lot of people working on it. And I think right now I certainly don't have the required background knowledge to understand how big a deal this is, but certainly this is a milestone and it'll be interesting to see what we get next. Seems like a really cool application of a GAN. (laughs) (laughs) What I'm going to say, I am very impressed they were able to use a GAN to to do this. Um. Yeah, yeah. To identify a molecule for an effective yes. drug against this disease, not yes. just to draw a human face. Yes, I agree. Yes, because if I yeah. had, I think of Gans as doing that, but this is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And on to our research and advancement section. Our first article is Stanford University uses AI computing to cut DNA sequencing down to five hours. All right. This is a new Guinness world record, uh, and it is for the fastest DNA sequencing technique, and it's using AI uh, to compute it. And this was published in uh, NEGEM, the New England Journal of Medicine, which is a uh, one of the top uh, journals, medical journals out there. And this involved speeding up every single step of genome sequencing the entire workflow uh, and much of it was supported by AI uh, using uh, to generate more than 100 gigabases of data per hour and uh, NVIDIA GPUs on GCP on Google Cloud uh, to speed up uh, the base calling and variant calling processes. Um, So this team was, uh, you know, from Stanford uh, and they actually had 12 patients enrolled and they had their genome sequence. 
Uh, and of the total, uh, five of those patients received a really fast return on their genetic diagnosis. One of them actually had it in five hours and two minutes, which is breaking the record by quite a bit. Um, the previous record was 14 hours. Uh, and they think this team thinks they can, you know, have that number again. Uh, and uh, just to give a little more context, there's uh, another you know, article that goes into a bit more detail titled the fastest DNA sequencing technique helps undiagnosed patients find answers in mere hours from science daily. And they go, this article goes a bit more into the utility of genome sequencing and specifically that if this is really, really fast, uh, and you can get a answer, you know, before the end of a hospital ward round, you could actually understand a lot more about the patient, uh, know what their, you know, genetic uh, variants or mutations might be, um, and whether they have anything that is rare that needs to be handled in a specific way. Uh, and so this is really useful down, down the line once this becomes very fast and very cheap. And you can imagine this being used across uh, hospitals everywhere. Definitely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, DNA sequencing is one of these things that has been improving rapidly for decades, going from, you know, it being incredibly expensive to getting a single sequence of human, human genome or, or something to that effect to now it, it being possible to sequence uh, a given person's genome relatively quickly. And, um, this, yeah, I've seen it pop up in various contexts where now you can use this, especially, you know, in children and babies, but also in other contexts. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very cool to see this sort of, um, ease of use going faster and hopefully just making it more, uh, easy to do rapidly. There's actually an article, um, sent to not an article, but uh, a little, uh, kind of uh, explanation of this in the New England Journal of Medicine, where uh, they call this ultra rapid nanopore genome sequencing in a critical care setting, which was uh, kind of a fun read. I mm -hmm. did not understand any of it, but they <laughs> do go through a lot of uh, kind of the steps they took to speed things up incrementally and kind of all the little cuts they managed to make. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, as we often talk about, it's, it's cool to be aware of all the, you know, less, uh, talked about applications. Yeah. We all know self-driving cars, we know computer vision, whatever, but I think a lot of these more esoteric use cases are use cases we haven't heard of, like um, looking for software vulnerabilities or like, uh, speeding up, uh, AI, uh, or speeding up DNA sequencing. That's what's really exciting to me as we do this podcast. That's what I really look forward to learning about. Yeah. Agreed. Likewise. And, uh, moving on, we have our next story. Uh, titled AI machines have beaten Moore's law over the last decade, say computer scientist from discover magazine. This is a slightly clickbaity title, but, uh, fair, you know, fairly awkward. So it's, it's all about 
this new paper titled Compute Trends Across Free Eras of Machine Learning. And interestingly, it's by six authors from all over the place. There was uh, the lead author is University of Aberdeen. There's the Center for Governance AI, University of St. Andrews, the University of Tübingen, University of Madrid, and MIT. So real uh, you know, international collaboration, which was neat to see. And essentially, it follows up on some prior work. There's been several papers that have tried to establish the trend of how much computational power was used in AI research over time. So if you can measure, you know, how many compute cycles of a CPU or GPU was required to train a given model to get the kind of main result of a paper, um, people have tried to basically get these sorts of numbers for a bunch of papers and then see if you can actually then fit an equation uh, to see the trend. So is it like... Uh, you know, what's the slope of a line, essentially? How rapidly is the compute being used uh, increasing? And in this paper, they make the case that, uh, like uh, some other papers, there's been a shift between AI pre-deep learning and in-deep learning, where pre-deep learning prior to about 20, uh, to, to 2010, it was a fairly... Um, consistent improvement that matched Moore's law, which is just saying that uh, compute power was increasing approximately doubling every two years, which is also what Moore's law is about is the density of transistors doubling roughly every two years. And then post 2010, when we got to deep learning, it uh, the trend has accelerated to the compute power doubling every five or six months. In fact, so it's been growing much faster, uh, and that's in large part due to using GPUs and using other hardware besides CPUs. And lastly, this paper is a bit novel from prior work in that it also now talks about large-scale era models like GPT-3, which are even breaking the trend of deep learning and are kind of on a different trajectory, which is interesting. Uh, yeah, so it's it's a nice breakdown. They have 120 papers to analyze, so pretty nice data set. Um, does this, I guess, ring true to you, Sharon, as far as this breakdown? To some extent, I would caveat to say that a lot of you know this new trend is also a function of how humans organize and how we've been organizing ourselves, for example, into these larger research institutions like DeepMind and OpenAI, creating much larger models because of the concentration of resources, both human capital and, uh, you know, compute. Uh, so I, I think it's in part due to that as well. And I, I don't want to say it's only because, you know, only because of the way we've been improving machine learning and training compute and everything. It's also a huge, huge function of how we're organizing ourselves in getting to that next leap. Yeah, exactly. And that also actually is somewhat covered in the paper where they actually explicitly say that this large scale era starting around 2016, where it's these mega large models that don't match the trend of deep learning, that it started with AlphaGo from DeepMind was maybe the first big example. Uh, 
And then it has been basically in industry labs that have released these uh, large scale models, um, which are accelerating about as fast or actually their computing is accelerating slower than general deep learning, but they are using kind of at a starting point orders of magnitude more compute than the general trend. So it's definitely kind of showing the bifurcation of resources between general academia research and industry uh, scale research. In industry, it's very apparent they're seeing, you know, limits to their compute with right with the with the hardware they're also buying. So they are also finding new ways of developing their own hardware to make that both much more cost effective for them if you do it internally, but also uh, generally more cost effective when and more efficient when when training something or doing inference. It's also kind of interesting um, as this hardware gets developed, right? It's sort of is also enabling not just these hyper large models, but uh, you know everything else also to to rise along. Any new GPU, any TPU, all these things, any optimization, all help. And because this large scale era tech models are doubling every ten months, whereas the regular sort of all of deep learning is doubling every five to six months, they're sort of converging in the graph <laughs> as, as of right now. So deep learning is heading towards the large scale era where everything is gigantic. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see if in a few years, you know, everything is hundreds of billions of parameters or, or most models are. Um, it's certainly feasible, but uh, it's kind of hard to imagine right now. And on to our next section on society and ethics. Our first article is China is about to regulate AI and the world is watching. And so last week on March 1st, China uh, actually outlawed a kind of algorithmic discrimination, uh, which is their first step in regulating artificial intelligence. And under these rules, companies will actually be prohibited from using personal information to do price differentiation on any kind of product or service. And this is a sweeping role. This covers, you know, algorithms that set prices. This covers uh, search results. This covers recommendations of videos. This covers filtering of content. Uh, and they will impose this uh, on, you know, ride hailing services, um, e-commerce, streaming, social media, just all over on the most popular and most valuable tech companies. Uh, and this is really interesting as we watch China do this because China can just make a regulation change overnight and apply it to everything. Uh, I think based on how we perceive China here in the West, uh, it might seem as a surprise that they're the first to be regulating AI, uh, but it actually is in line with the Chinese public and the Chinese public is quite supportive of these measures uh, to curb the power of big tech platforms, which is very similar to how I think the sentiment is now in the West as well. So that is actually quite consistent. Um, they did. The article does mention that you know some of these new regulations will be hard to enforce, uh, and it could you know be very challenging. But uh, China has also said that 
any companies that violate the rules could face fines. Um, they could be barred from enrolling new users. They could have their business licenses pulled. They could have their sites or apps shut down. Uh, so it's quite a big, quite a big uh a change um, that would shut down, essentially shut down the the business or growth of the business uh, if they are found violating any of these things. Yeah, yeah, this is kind of seems like a big deal, you know, and it, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure most people uh, out here in the West are not aware about kind of the landscape of regulation of AI in China. Last year, we talked about how China had a sweeping set of regulations about facial recognition and how they, uh, the government uh, is now uh, regulating the use of facial recognition by private companies. And they must basically be audited and make sure that their use case is warranted. Uh, and now they yeah, are, are doing going beyond that to just looking at other negative impacts of uh, algorithms like just promoting addictive contact uh, content which is uh, obviously a huge deal because most of social media is promoting addictive content uh, most like tiktok is <laughs> you know the quintessential algorithm backed addictive content so yeah i think it it is very interesting and it is very worthwhile for people in the west to maybe be aware of this as uh, kind of a status of AI development in China uh, and just, yeah, be aware of that. These sorts of very um, severe actions or regulation that I think can be argued to be very positive uh, are happening there. Right, right. We can't just paint it as black and white, of course. Um, a, a similar um, type uh, regulation is that ByteDance, which owns TikTok, uh, but also uh, Douyin, um, the short video app in uh, in China, uh, actually started showing five second videos that tell users to log off after they've been watching for a long time. And I thought that was just a really interesting way to curb addiction uh, to this very addictive feed that the algorithm is giving you that, you know, it knows what you'll like next and keep you going. Uh, so it's adding that in. And that is in part uh, due to other regulation uh, that China did have around these algorithms. So there's a lot being done um, in these big tech companies. And it's something that I think we should very much be watching here and seeing what works and what doesn't, and perhaps using some similar measures, uh, perhaps implemented in different ways, but similar measures uh, on some of the companies here, depending on whether we see a similar, you know, negative societal impacts that China is seeing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, this this um, thing you mentioned also, yeah, the idea that popular apps, like the majority of them have a way for users to opt out of personalized recommendations because of this law is, is a huge deal. And, uh, yeah, is, is just starkly, you know, in, in the U S that seems like, and the possibility, right. That's just what is a default. So definitely worth being aware of and to, you know, uh, think of 
whether something similar uh, could be accomplished out here for these negative impacts. And on to our next story about society and ethics. Uh, pretty sad topic, but one that does warrant discussion. We're going to touch on the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine. And in particular, there's an article titled Russia's AI Army, Drones, AI Guided Missiles and Autonomous Tanks. It goes into how Russia's uh, army, obviously, it's much bigger. They have a very high investment in it. It's the third largest army in the world. And technologically, of course, it has uh, many resources. And part of that are these weapons that are AI-enabled, AI-powered, not, not necessarily fully autonomous, but they would not be possible without AI. So, for instance, uh, like most uh, militarized uh, rich nations, Russia has fleets of drones. So it has drones here that have specific examples like the KUB BLA uh, drone that can destroy remote ground targets, deliver payloads, and you can uh, set where it should go based on remote control or based on just setting in an image where it should go and then the drone's AI guidance system can get it there. And uh, now it has even newer drones that have been developed more recently. Uh, on top of that, they have also a variety of other uh, semi-autonomous or autonomous weapons. So they have unmanned ground vehicles uh, that are can be used from bomb disposal to anti-aircraft and, uh, you know, actually uh, fighting against people. Uh, and they have um, these AI-guided missiles, right, that uh, can change targets mid-flight, in fact, which is pretty stark. So it's, it's an interesting article to read just to be aware of you know, this whole vision of AI in the military and robots in the military that we have from popular media like Terminator, that's not at all here. But in many ways, AI is making its way into military technology already. And um, personally, I, I suspect that having all these unmanned technologies, all these drones, all these missiles just makes it possible to be even more destructive and to just without having as many people on the ground just send in bombs and you know target cities as russia has been doing with a lot of bombarding um yeah so it it was good to read about this and i think possibly one of the positive outcomes of the situation could be more discussion as to how to regulate autonomous uh, AI-powered uh, technology such as this. Um, but obviously, at the moment, uh, that's not the uh, focus. I also found it interesting from the article that you know Russia is one of the biggest spenders on defense in the world, with about $62 billion spent in just 2020, probably gearing up for uh, what they're doing now. <laughs> And uh, they're only behind, you know, U.S. and China here. 
But specifically, they also did mention, or, or President Putin did mention uh, in 2017 that, quote, whoever becomes a leader in AI will become the ruler of the world. And so he definitely has been thinking about AI and, and of course, relative to, uh, in relation to defense spending. Of course, all three of these large countries have been thinking about both of these things. Um, so it's not a huge surprise. It is interesting to see these deployed now and being used uh, for something so so real and pertinent to the world right now. Yeah, and uh, there's been organizations such as the Campaign to Stop Kill Robots, I think we've discussed it before on this podcast, that have uh, argued for regulations and sort of laws, international standards for these sort of technologies. In fact, I recall last um, year we talked about how we there was a, a sort of conference in the UN where a lot of countries wanted to do this. And the U.S., as well as some other countries like India and Russia, basically backed away and said no to regulating anything that has these sorts of autonomous capabilities. So, uh, you know, yeah, I think this is an issue that maybe does deserve more attention. You know, we talk a lot about deep fakes. We talk a lot about biases, but we don't talk a lot about this topic, um, maybe because it's less it's more hidden but I do think it's definitely happening and deserves attention. Well, I think we were at least in, even now in the US, we we are not directly super affected in our day to day by this, aside from reading about the news. And so it doesn't feel as at home as the other stuff, which does feel like we are affected as consumers day to day by certain aspects of you know, uh, police using facial recognition, for example. So here, I think it largely is about, maybe it's about that where the news doesn't hit us as much um, on this angle. But I do think it's a really important aspect to be talking about. And the AI community and general tech community has had a very interesting relationship with defense and traditionally has been uh, pretty much shying away from it. And I think now I've heard uh, more and more voices actually say the contrary and start to say, maybe we should be developing this if we want to be able to, you know, be able to combat uh, Russia, for example, if they were to come. And so it's interesting to hear how that rhetoric has been potentially changing, at least from people I'm surrounded by. Um, and it really depends on what's going on in the world and how much threat is perceived. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. In general, the, the that relationship is interesting. Uh, on the one hand, most uh, AI researchers and tech people in general don't like the idea of working for military and, or military technology. On the other hand, DARPA, uh, the... Uh, advanced research uh, arm of the U.S. military has funded a ton of AI research over multiple decades. Really, uh, a lot of robotics research is just fueled by the U.S. military. Um, part of why uh, uh, Hinton, uh, Jeffrey Hinton, one of the most important figures in AI today wanted to go to Canada is that he did not want to be funded by the military. 
even, you know, even if you're not doing anything directly related to the military, in many cases, the, the funding was coming from there. So it's an interesting relationship and uh, it's becoming more and more relevant, uh, it seems. And uh, as you said, yeah, maybe for people who are doing AI research and people in tech, it's it's a time to sort of be more aware of this uh, relationship. And on to our fun and neat section, much lighter. Uh, the first is how vacation photos of zebras and whales can help conservation. Uh, so scientists are using AI to analyze photos of zebras, of sharks, and uh, of various animals to identify you know, individual animals um, as well as track them and offer new insights into their, you know, movements and their popu overall population trends. And they use um, some kind of AI to search through uh, publicly shared social media posts now for relevant species. And that, you know, might mean a lot of people's vacation photos. And that could mean, you know, sharks that they saw in the Caribbean. Um, and that would then that will then downstream now be used uh, for science and conservation, which is pretty cool. Uh, and uh, they're just, you know, they're, <laughs> they're doing population counts. They're checking birth and death dynamics, uh, species range, social interactions and interactions with other species, including with humans. And it, this is so interesting to be basically, I'm imagining leveraging Instagram <laughs> for, um, exactly. for this kind of analysis. <laughs> yeah, this is super fun to just, you know, imagine being doable that just people posting their vacation photos of cool looking animals. You know, if you collect that data uh, over a lot of different photos, you actually can use it to gather useful information and help with these efforts. It's a very fun idea. Uh, and it, it does kind of speak to, you know, GPT-3, a lot of modern AI is just scraping what we put up on the internet and learning all sorts of things from it. Um, and this is an example where that's the case, but it's more directed than just learning anything. So it's kind of fun to think about whether there are any other potential uh, use cases like this where, you know, uh, given a particular context, you can just collect a certain type of data and then use it for a useful uh, end result. That's not just like fun vacation photos. Uh, yeah, fun story. And there's a new institute even, you know, the Image Omics Institute. People talk about all sorts of omics, like genomics, um, but this is the Image Omics Institute uh, just to do this. And the NSF gave uh, Ohio State to create this about $15 million uh, in September, back in September. And just, just to give you a sense of some of the questions that they're probing at, given the photos, they actually get quite complex. So for example, is the pattern of stripes on a zebra similar in a meaningful way to its mother's pattern? And if so, can that give information about their genetic similarities? So interesting. That must be from photos of, you know, the, the mother and the baby. And then also, how do the skulls of bat species vary with environmental conditions and what evolutionary pattern, uh, what evolutionary adaptation drives that change? 
And so, you know, different environmental conditions, they will have to, you know, detect what the environmental condition is and that there's a bat there and a type of species of bat in, you know, in, in doing that analysis. So this is very interesting and quite the feat in crowdsourcing. Yeah, exactly. And, and looking at um, this new Imageomics Institute, um, I guess this article might have been in part because a few weeks ago, a, a few weeks ago, um, they released a new article in Nature Communications titled Perspectives in Machine Learning for Wildlife Conservation, in which they outlined this whole new direction, essentially, like you said, that you can do a lot of these things from all this uh, image data out in the, so to speak, wild, in the wild of the internet, and I guess also in the wild of wherever photos are being taken. Um, yeah, so maybe not, this is, I would say, maybe cool uh, as on top of being fun and neat, yeah. And uh, moving on to our next story, uh, that's pretty fun. We have Walmart's Choose My Model Helps Shoppers Try On Clothes Virtually. So Walmart has launched Choose My Model, which is a virtual tool powered by computer vision and AI on the company's website that allows shoppers to pick a person who resembles their height, shape, and skin tone to show how clothes would fit according to a recent press release. So at first I thought this would be like, you try on clothes via computer vision. It just takes a photo of you and then projects uh, the clothes onto you or something like that. But in fact, the idea here is they take photos of these clothes with many different um, models, human models, you know, actual people wearing these clothes and being photographed, maybe hundred, 200, just covering a large variety of different heights and shapes and skin tones. Uh, so instead of generating a sort of synthetic image by combining a photo of you and these clothes, now you have high quality images from many different types of models representing different uh, ethnicities and, and shapes and so on. And AI here is really just used to kind of find the best uh, fit that might be representative for you, uh, which is actually, I think, is is a nice approach. I think um, maybe it's it's a little obvious to just go to virtual try on with AI, but I think it's also smart to start with real data and just sort of have AI make it easier to access the right photos as opposed to just creating new ones. Uh, what do you think, Sharon? I mean, I think this makes sense. I think people have been talking about such a tool for quite some time. And to see this actually deployed at Walmart is pretty exciting to, you know, to see how how much people actually like it and use it. I, I haven't used it yet. I, I don't really shop there. Actually, I've been trying to not shop that much at all. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, I think this... You know, this makes a lot of sense uh, and to see how people fit into these clothes, because I, th I will say that it is it is challenging to figure out uh, what you'll actually fit into, especially online. So uh, it, to help solve that problem would be would be amazing. And it's not just like the fit of it's the fit of it and also just like the material, how it flows on your body as you move. So I think the next step is uh, getting a short video of the model moving as well. 
Mm, good point. Good point. And then we have one more story I just added for fun that cool. we weren't planning on originally. I just tacked on this one story called Baidu plans a hundred city robo taxi rollout by 2030. Uh, so uh, they plan to introduce an autonomous taxi service to 65 cities by 2025 and then another 35, 60 by 2030. And this is fun because I think both you and I, Sharon, are not big fans of driving. I just got my driver's license last year. And uh, I don't know <laughs> your status, but uh, I look forward to a robo-taxi future where we don't I need do to too. drive. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, we, we need to just get there. It's so much nicer than owning a car and having to deal with all this stuff and I just want a, a robot taxi to drive me around. Let me just use my phone to call one and get wherever I need. That's my dream. I agree. This is the dream. And I can imagine China rolling this out before us. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If as we've seen. Cities. Yeah. 65 yeah. cities is quite a quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, it's about maybe the 65 cities are the less big ones. I imagine so. <laughs> yeah, because something like Shanghai would be, you know, crazy. Yeah, Beijing is going to be like last. <laughs> and yeah. Shanghai are going to be last. To well, be maybe fair, they're not even on this list, yeah. Yeah, like in the US, we are seeing some progress, very, very gradual progress. Waymo is now starting to work in SF as a beta, and then Cruise is also working in San Francisco to some extent. And I guess Tesla is sort of everywhere in its beta full self-driving. So Right, right. So hopefully by 2030, we'll have some robo-taxis. I don't know. I'm keeping expectations low just so I can be pleasantly surprised when it happens. Yes, let's do that. And with that, thank you so much for listening to us on this week's episode of Skynet Today's Last Week in AI podcast. Again, you can find the articles we discuss here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at lastweekin.ai. And make sure you leave us a review and tune in next week. Yeah. Leave us, you know, are you a friend of mine listening? Because if you're a <laughs> friend of mine and you haven't left a review, come on. <laughs> You are friend of <laughs> you're going to lose a lot of friends and we're going to get a lot of reviews. I do not know. I do not I don't, know. I don't think my friends listen to this. Uh, but. I don't. <laughs> if you're listening, do you want to become our friend? Because I'll be your friend. Leave a review that's nice and I'll hang out with you. Okay, it's a that's deal. Right. That's right. Anyway, yeah, be sure to tune in next, next week. Next week. <laughs>